Let's see what the stew has for us today. Welcome to the Gnomecast, Gnome Stew's tabletop gaming advice podcast. Here we talk with the other gnomes about gaming things to avoid becoming part of the stew, so I guess we'd better be good. This episode is brought to you by our awesome Patreon backers like the Courageous Craig, the Judicious Jen Pixelscapes Gagney, and the Dashing Daniel Markwig. Today we have myself, Ange, along with Chuck and Tomas, and today we're going to talk about memorable encounter locations. Before we get into that, though, we're going to ask a get-to-know-a-gnome question. And today's question is, what real-life locations have you used as inspiration for scenes or encounters in a game? Chuck, I'm going to start with you. Sure. So I've been lucky enough to visit Stirling Castle in Scotland, not once, but twice. And while I haven't used it to set a particular encounter in Stirling Castle, that might change at some point in time as I'm running a very historically oriented game. They have an excellent reproduction of what life was like and what the structures of the buildings were like there. Uh, In particular, the kitchen and the gardens were just so tremendously evocative that that feel of that area is something that I've gone back to over and over again for my own inspirations. What about you, Ange? So quite a few years ago, when I was running my very first campaign ever, it was a supers game. And so I was using a lot of real life locations and I used the Venetian Casino in Las Vegas for a fight set piece with the characters. It actually wasn't the most memorable set piece because after that, after they defeated the bad guys that were kidnapping people and trashed part of the Venetian Casino and even broke into the mall part of it that has the actual canal that Mm -hmm. runs through with little gondolas Mm -hmm. and, you know, people singing, you know, they got invited to a an event in a penthouse kind of ballroom suite, which got attacked by a guy who thought he was a pirate using a flying pirate ship. Uh, (laughs) And that was much more memorable to my players than the fight in the casino. But I definitely used the fact that I had actually been to Vegas and that casino to use it in the game. That's awesome. So I, I just have to step in for just a moment. I'm not 100% convinced that most people in Vegas would notice if a superhero sky pirate came in on an airship. And second, for any readers who haven't been to the Venetian in Vegas, which I have been lucky enough to go to, the whole thing is it has a gorgeous mall attached to it, but it also has a section that really has this almost cartoonish view of what Venice looks like. Mm -hmm. And it's this very Disney world. It's a small world creepy vibe to the whole thing that when I visited, I actually thought this would be a great role-playing game encounter location. So bravo there. One of the things I loved is that usually at the entrance, there is someone there to call a cab for you at the Vene- and like every single mm-hmm. one of the big casinos, hotel setups has this, but at the Venetian, the guy who was doing it was singing old school Italian, you know, either Sinatra or opera or just something that was, he was actually live singing, you know, as he's calling the cab for you or, you know, telling the valet they need to get your car. And I'm just like, okay, this is totally, you know, diving into the aesthetic here. That's (laughs) awesome. How about you, Tomas? Well, I've got many places that I think any inspiration from. Uh, recently, I've uh, used a uh, Myrtle Forest that I went to 
for those that don't know, a myrtle forest is some kind of weird type of trees that have weird colors, like the ones that appear in the film Bambi. Mm-hmm. Uh, those that are like uh, brown and white, and I use them as inspiration for my Feywild encounters and locales, and everything was beautiful uh, as I described it. Uh, well, that was uh, pretty uh, useful to take inspiration from. And another thing that I recently used was uh, as I was planning to make a small city in the middle of the mountain section that took inspiration from ancient China. So I ah. started looking at all sorts of photos and I went into Google Earth. And while doing some research, I took some photos from there through the internet, obviously, and I used them uh, to describe uh, the different kinds of buildings that are over there and the rooftops, the way that the people uh, behave in some way by reading some articles about it and um, listening to the Asians Represent podcast that talk very much about all those sorts of things. Uh, well, by combining all those um Sources of inspiration, I could make a small city that was very ancient China based. That's very cool. That mm-hmm. is excellent. And and just a tremendously underutilized in, in Western RPGs setting. And and when I say underutilized, I mean people try, but when you kind of view things from a very superficial level, you lose so much. And it sounds like you didn't lose that at all. You went all the way in. So I love it. Yeah, I, I try not to make like racist um mm-hmm sort of views of what it could be, but try to make some research and try to mm-hmm. go into detail in the different things that actually are like uh, these sort of landscapes and the way that people behave. Yeah, that's actually, can we use that as a segue into the first part of this? Because I think that's just such sure. a... Sure. Okay, great. So I think I, I absolutely love that. And I think the thing that I've seen brought up over and over again is when you take someone else's culture or their area and you want to sort of respectfully not play in it. But I mean, that's what we're doing. We're playing games. Mm -hmm. I I think people are much more amenable to that idea if you treat yourself as a guest rather than as someone who's coming in to own something. And I also think the locations that you use become richer when you do that, because rather than saying, oh, this is what I think it is. So I'm going to like sort of pile more of that on there. If you go in with an open, curious mindset, you just get so much more. Yeah. Yeah, Wikipedia is your best friend on that. You can research all sorts of mm-hmm. things from there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's that's actually... what I, I want to actually, you know, clarify that this is the opening, this is the topic we're talking... We're, we're talking about mm-hmm. memorable encounter locations. And we all know that's super important, but we wanted to talk about, you know, how to make sure that your game has those memorable locations and your players just aren't constantly stuck in a dungeon with 10-foot high walls mm-hmm. and 10-foot wide corridors and, you know, brown stone that's been carved. And, like, no, let's let's vary this up some. You know, to that, that topic, you know, that topic we segued into, one of the beautiful things we have access to is the Internet. Mm-hmm. You know, the Internet mm-hmm. can provide you with so much information you know, whether you're doing cultural research or you just want to look up maps or look at what a real life location looks like, you know, the, the, my, my daily job is looking at in pictures of places. It's an aerial mapping company. So I look at, 
I look at your backyard. You know, I look at pe- places <laughs> all the time. So it's the, you know, seeing a location and then getting in a little closer in looking in Google Maps or wherever to get a better feel for how that location is laid out can really help you give that variety to your game. Mm-hmm. So I, I think one thing when making an encounter location memorable is you can have purple prose all day long. You can have the best descriptions in the world. Everyone who plays games is a frustrated novelist on some level, but <laughs> none of that is going to matter unless the players interact with it. So I think the key to having any sort of memorable encounter location is to have a way for the players to interact, whether it's dangers or opportunities or anything else, have it actually impact the mechanics or the, the playthrough of the game itself. And failing that, remind them constantly. People are always afraid of repeating themselves, and I'm sure people do repeat themselves a lot, but in the case of a game, we can only remember so much at once. So reminding someone that this room is full of hot coal braziers and maybe those get knocked over once in a while, use different senses, bring it in, make it something that the characters can do something about rather mm-hmm. than just a, a painted backdrop. So, Tomas, do you have any ideas on that? Yeah, I wanted to clarify and add a bit more to what you were saying because mm-hmm. a lot of what we see in media can also be used uh, in here because we can describe, like, remember that scene from a lost arc from Indiana Jones in which he was doing something? Well, uh, this room looks just like that. So mm-hmm. if you describe it that way, the players don't need to uh, hear all your huge description about the room, but can assume some things. And maybe one can say, hey, I remember that could be that maybe some weird uh, table is over here that I can use to wreck a character uh, on the head uh, by using it or using some torch in the walls that maybe you forgot to describe and by giving a clear picture of what you're trying to make uh, the people around you can often uh, use those sort of sort of things that they can imagine and maybe implement it to the game using the typical yes and um, methodology from um, how do you call it? Improv? Improbably, yeah. Yeah, yeah and, and I would also add to that, because you've already described the location, if your player says, hey, is there this here? Mm-hmm. And exactly. this makes sense for the setting, even if you didn't think about it, let it be there. Let the player yeah. mm-hmm. add to the backdrop of this encounter and let's see what they do with it. You know, if a player asks you, is there a chandelier in this room? And there might be a chandelier in the room. Just say yes, because it's going to be hilarious to see what they do with the chandelier. There are always are chandeliers in my rooms. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. There always needs to be one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> one of the things we talked about briefly when we discussed this topic is it is important for you as a GM to also be mindful of your favorite types of locations. Because it's very Mm -hmm. easy to fall into a redundant trap of, you know, maybe you're only doing it every third game, but your players are still going to get really tired of that, you know, the World War II bunker that is in almost every game. As as I was explaining to, to these guys, when I saw Captain America Winter Soldier with a friend and Cap and Black Widow go into that World War II bunker... We turned, my friend and I turned to each other and it's like, it's that guy's game because there's a 
GM we play with who puts that type of setting into almost every game he runs. <laughs> yeah, I, I do that with warehouses full of vampires, unfortunately. That is a very predictable <laughs> thing for me, uh, and I have definitely gotten called out for it. Oh, yeah, I'm saving all my vampires for some future game because I want to have a, a really uh, vampire and gothic heavy uh, game or campaign. And I'm oh, trying not to use them as much in my current campaign so I can abuse of that uh, level of monstrosities and monsters on that future campaign that I have one. That's <laughs> If only I had that level of restraint. <laughs> I have to be careful with uh, carnivals and amusement parks. Oh, that yeah. sounds awesome. They're, 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 they're fantastic for setting any kind of game, but when you use them a little too often, play you know, like I had a player go, Oh, I've already played this scenario, and I'm like, No, you didn't. It was just set in an amusement park, so it feels the same. Yeah, but this one is a different color. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, and under the best of circumstances, no offense, Six Flags, uh, under the best of circumstances, an amusement park is creepy. At night, it's just a whole other level of. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, has anybody ever Googled old abandoned amusement parks? Oh, I have. As... I have. <laughs> many, many, many years ago, I lived in Wichita, and there was a place called Joyland that was already just falling apart when I was there. And since then, just Google Joyland pictures and be prepared to have your skin just crawl off of your bones looking at it. As, as I mentioned, I, I work for a company that does aerial photography for mapping purposes. And I got to, over several years of them capturing every other year, uh, I got to watch the uh, New Orleans Six Flags fall apart because it Ooh. basically shut down after Hurricane Katrina because it got flooded yeah. and it was never reopened and they basically sat in limbo for many years as they tried to figure out what to do with it and then eventually they just sold off the rides that could be salvaged and let the rest just kind of fall apart or get torn down so it's like there's these subsequent years of everything's intact but now it's starting to get overgrown oh mm -hmm. this this ride is gone mm -hmm. that ride is gone that ride is now falling apart and yeah abandoned amusement parks are really really great creepy settings for a game, which is why I have to be careful not to use them too much. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. No, I think I've only ever used an amusement park once. I'm going to need to fix that. <laughs> yeah, you need to. <laughs> yeah. There's Possibly several uh, one-shots, adventures, and uh, all sorts of things. That's a pretty well-used concept on the internet mm -hmm. that you can steal from. I think as a, as a general note for any GM, when you're planning out your campaign, regardless of whether it's a modern setting or a fantasy game or what, you know, a space game, you just need to be mindful of making sure you're giving your players a variety of settings. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it's you don't you don't want to you don't want to have your role playing game compared to one of those video games where they just reuse the same assets every time they build so every time you're going into a warehouse it looks exactly the same you're always going into the same type of locations you gotta vary it up mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that's why you need to have a list of adjectives maybe or some ways to describe in a different way your environments 
so they can seem at least a bit different. Uh, images can work for that as well. You can have a list of different images, maybe from ArtStation, mm -hmm. Instagram, or for different artists that you can use at your own table. Mm -hmm. So you don't need to pay them. <laughs> <laughs> but if you're using them online, please uh, make sure to at mm -hmm. least mention them. Uh, so yeah, give credit uh, where credit is yeah, due. Yeah, give credit. And if you're going to publish it, you got to pay somebody. Exactly. So if you are using it at your own table, you can make sure to show it to your players and they can have a pretty easy concept of what everything looks like. Mm -hmm. And just because I am who I am, uh, it is worth pointing out, though we're heading into lockdown sort of worldwide again before too long, if you're lucky mm -hmm. enough to have an in-person group, Actually, having set piece terrain is another great way to make a location interesting. Oh, yeah. And you don't have to build a whole battle map. Oftentimes, a single prop or a single piece of something that players can hold in their hands really helps bring it home. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The thing that I have long said is that your players are either going to be playing with their minis, something on the map, or dice towers. And if they're playing with something that keeps them in the setting, you're going to have a better game. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And one of the other things I'll just, I'm just going to reiterate, Chuck said this earlier, but make sure whatever you're, wh however you're describing the setting, the players can interact with it. Mm -hmm. It's not just, you know, you hung a curtain up that has a different background on it. Mm -hmm. You know, like if it's icy terrain, the players have to deal with the icy terrain. Mm -hmm. You know, if there's multiple trees that are in their way, you know, make sure you take that into account when sight when you know determining sight lines. Who can you see? Who can you affect? Mm -hmm. You know, make sure that the setting itself is, you know, is important. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like sometimes you 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 hear people talk about movies or TV shows where they refer to the setting as almost being another character in the story. Mm -hmm. You don't need to do that every single time. For every game, but you should try and at least gain a touch of that mm -hmm. for your games, I think. And also other sensory language. I Everybody talks about it all the time. And I think that people are afraid that you have to be a novelist to be able to do it. But once out of every 10 descriptions, say what something smells like. <sighs> it's so useful. It's mm -hmm. so useful. And it's so easy. I ran Dragon Heist for mm -hmm. my players and there are a couple of times in there in in the the published adventure where they're supposed to go down into the sewers mm -hmm. i made sure to keep mentioning how it smelled mm -hmm. and my players <laughs> were like i want to get out of here as quick as i can because this is disgusting this is gross mm -hmm. i'm gonna go home and i'm gonna take a bet you know like like it reinforced that you know it wasn't just yeah a dungeon that happens to be under the city. No, it is a sewer system that has some dungeon-like aspects built off of it because it's a fantasy city. And, you know, every time after that scenario, and there had to be, you know, a consideration of whether they went down into the sewers, my players were like, no, mm -hmm. no. Can we avoid it? Can we do something else? Because that smell, that you know, describing that smell in a visceral way you know, mm -hmm. helps make that setting stand out even more in your players' minds. And also, uh, relevant to an article that I literally just finished last night, conditions are another great way to bring those elements of a setting in. If it's dark, consider giving your players the blinded condition. 
If it's a sewer, consider giving them the stinky condition, which doesn't actually <laughs> exist, but stay tuned. I have a back of the envelope one uh, coming up in an article soon. But uh, oh, yeah, nice. it's, it's, yeah, that kind of thing. It doesn't always need to be your roles are more difficult or your roles are easier. Just throw in different ways of making it happen. Mm -hmm. And you can mark your players with that so that you can remember that they are getting close to an NPC and they are thinky, so the NPC yeah. is sure to react in some way to that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Spray them with patchouli oil. Don't actually do that. <laughs> your, your stealth check failed because you smell. Yep, absolutely. Absolutely. Go take a bath now. <laughs> <laughs> I literally, during that Dragon Heist campaign... They were supposed to be chasing these things across, you know, through the city across the rooftops. And one of the players tried to climb a building, failed, and so I felt said she fell into one of the open sewers. At which point, the player's like, "I'm going home and taking a bath." Like the player <laughs> literally gave up on the chase to go home, have her character go home and take a bath. I mean, what a great character moment there! Yeah, that defines yeah. the character. <laughs> yep, that's awesome. So I've been playing, uh, Jared has been running a Sentinels of the Multiverse RPG game. And one of the interesting things they do in that RPG is the setting that your superhero fight is taking place in mm -hmm. has certain aspects to it that you as characters need to deal with. Like our first fight had, it was like an open square and there was a hospital on one side elementary school on another, an apartment building. And as this big fight between big bad bruisers is happening, we had to, you know, take into account that something bad is happening to the hospital, something bad is happening to the elementary school. So it's like these aspects of the setting were things you had to engage with rather than just being a backdrop, you know, to kind of bring home that whole, it's a superhero game you need to make sure the civilians are safe. You know? mm -hmm. Oh my goodness, that is brilliant. It, it's a brilliant card game. And the next time I run a Supers game, I think I'm just going to pull out the location decks and I'm just going to use them as mm -hmm. inspiration while stuff's going on. I am going to be running a, a game tomorrow and I have mm -hmm. planned something similar to what you were just saying because I have a, a weird um, sort of farewell champion that is working with a demon that my players aren't going to hear this as, as for at least some time, so I can speak openly about it. Uh, <laughs> that, <laughs> uh, in which uh, the demon is going to make the players decide if they want to battle him or they want to rescue some prisoner that is going to be killed by some other demon or mm -hmm. make sure that they stop a ritual that is going to uh, summon a Valor from hell. So making those sort of things happen in your environment very they can clearly make the decision-making very important because if one of those things happens, they're going to break into a lot of other things in the future. Well, that it changes the whole encounter and makes the, the, the evil guy, the death demon, uh, a very memorable bad guy. Yeah, yeah. You can't stop all of these at once, so mm -hmm. what are you going to yeah. stop? They had enough time to stop him and they took some time off by going chase a dragon. So now this is what happens, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> yep, yep. I think another little tidbit I'll offer is don't forget to go vertical. You know, yeah. we tend to think in terms of maps, which can sometimes come off as very flat. 
Mm-hmm. Don't forget to, you know, add some some height and some mm-hmm. some vertical issues that your players need to deal with. Yep. That can be yeah, that can be really challenging in a virtual tabletop environment unless you're using something like Tailspire or one of those other sort of or really good isometric maps. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it adds so much every time you do it. Yeah. You've just got to love it. And it's and it's just about communication at that point. Yeah. Yeah, but there are different ways to use them in any sort of uh, thing you're using. If you are playing on Roll20, for example, you have those little circle things over your characters that you can use to maybe write the distance from the ground mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. you can mm-hmm. tell in some sort of way how high they are, they are from the ground. And mm-hmm. if you are on your table uh, rolling dice uh, all at the same room, maybe you can use a D6, that's what I use, uh, to signal in feet how high they are from the ground. So a one is five feet, a two is ten feet. If there is a different game, there are several other ways to do it. Or maybe go theater of the mind. Mm-hmm. The um, we we hang on to uh, for my in person group, we hang on to the Chessex dice cubes that you buy dice in. They're mm-hmm. clear and basically they're they're a little bit bigger than you know one inch square, but they're oh, yeah. nice to basically you can put down, put the character on top, and it looks like they're vertical now. They're flying. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of my friends has one of those as well, so he uses it all the time to fly. He uses a, a draconic sorcerer that has wings and brings them all the time to go very flashy and kill people from the air. Gotta, cool. gotta love those awesome character moments, yep. Yeah. <laughs> Great. So, we're all GMs here. What are what are some, some encounter settings that you've put in your game that you thought worked pretty well? Well, I don't actually have... Uh, one of mine to uh, to use at the moment, but I have one in the top of my mind that I always remember because it's a marvelous encounter that was uh, made by Matt Mercer. So many of you know him, if not all of you. <laughs> I don't know him, but I know of him. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, so there is one encounter. I'm not going to talk in spoilers that much, but there are some creatures that can make you when you hear them move in a random direction. And the mm-hmm. character had to cross a, a bridge, a very narrow bridge. So uh, using the sort of uh, monster mechanics, you can make the environment all the way, uh, all the better. So by having the characters cross that thin bridge, uh, they had to maybe make sure that they can't hear those monsters so they don't fall off. And if they fell off, they went into some kind of weird, I wouldn't call it death spiral, but failure spiral that mm-hmm. once you fall in everyone has to go rescue it or maybe they will die or something like that make sure to use all the monsters and all the different environments in some way to your advantage to make the encounter all the more a bit that's awesome yeah mm-hmm. how about you check so i actually just uh either last week or the week before ran an encounter on the lightning rail from eberron mm-hmm. um which I, i'm overall not in love with the setting of eberron but you throw in some some Magic the Gathering Kaladesh in there, and suddenly, for some reason, that makes me in love with it. Um, but the, the characters actually ended up having to fight on railroad cars. I mean, the, the standard fighting on top of a train car. But even something as simple as adding an athletics role to get across from one train car to another mm-hmm. added so much to that game, uh, especially when people started failing that role over and over and over again. So that's a kind of approach I think I'll be taking much more often. It's really great. 
Um, what about you, Ange? Um, you know, I've got a few different ones I've put out there, but there was one, there was one, it was a, a circular chamber. In the center of the chamber is a, you know, warrior statue. Mm-hmm. And on there's six pillars around the room, and each pillar has a different gem. I think I said 12 feet up. So mm-hmm. nothing the players could reach without some kind of athletic check. Mm-hmm. And the moment they, they cross a certain point in the room, of course, the giant warrior statue comes to life and mm-hmm. starts attacking them. Of course. They do. And immediately, oh, and there was uh, cherub statues perched on the top of each of the pillars. Each of those cherub statues comes to life and starts attacking the players. And they basically, you know, sure, they could just do a knockdown, drag out slugfest with all of them and do something. But each time one of the players successfully touched one of those gems and made a saving throw mm-hmm. for whatever stat that gem represented, mm-hmm. they would basically take out one of the cherubs and knock down the defenses of the, the basically the stone golem. Mm-hmm. And it, it's always been I've run it several different times because it's it's one of my campaign one shots. And it's been always interesting to see how long it takes the players to figure out mm-hmm. what the gems mean, actually how to reach the gems, who's best suited for each type of gem, you know, and I've had some players completely ignore the golem and just run away from it as they run around the room trying to figure out how to deal with the gems and the cherubs. And I've had other players completely ignore the gems until like they're realizing like, no, you're not going to, you're not going to defeat this guy. You need to actually deal with the environment as well as, you know, what's next. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's what I'm pretty proud of. I wanted to add a, a thing more to what you were saying, because uh, now that you were mentioning the, the stone golem, I remember the, the slasher films from horror movies. That the core thing about them is that there is a villain that you can't kill and that is making sure that mm-hmm. everyone dies. Try to use that in your game as well. Grab a, a powerful villain and make sure that uh, that villain is slow, extremely slow, and going mm-hmm. after the players. So they, as they are going into a dungeon, maybe, uh, as some sort of different, uh, the different rooms, they always uh, can hear the steps, the rocky steps from that golem that is behind them and that can't be affected by any sort of magic that they have so that creates a very terrifying moment that you can also use in your adventure i'm planning on using that on the future as well that's not yeah that's brilliant i'm definitely mm-hmm. going to use that yeah sometimes in those situations i will say sometimes in those situations you have to be a little more blunt with your players mm-hmm yeah. I was actually in a convention game that ended up in becoming a TPK, Total Party Kill, because the GM expected the players to run away from the bad guy they couldn't fight. Mm-hmm. But the players were a mix of... A, we had one guy who understood what was happening and understood that the smart thing to do was to run away, but he liked poking the bear, so he kept encouraging the player that was a little too obtuse to figure this out to keep attacking. And mm-hmm. even though I'm sitting there screaming, we need to run away, and the GM is throwing plot points at me, no one would actually leave because you're not supposed to come across an encounter you can't handle in a game. Exactly. So sometimes as a GM, you need to be a little more blunt. You guys, give me an insight check. You realize you can't handle this. 
mm-hmm. you know. Let, 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 let me say that bribing your players is never a bad idea if you're oh, trying yeah. to get across the idea that you can run away. And it doesn't have to be as straightforward as, hey, I'll give you 10 XP if you run away from this battle. But, hey, if you run away, you can probably take a short rest in that alcove over there and, I don't know, come back fresh. Mm-hmm. Something along those lines. I have friends who run Mutants and Masterminds. And mm-hmm. a lot of times what they will do is, especially when you're running something involving like major heroes like the Justice League or whatever, sometimes they'll be whatever do. They'll like they'll offer a hero point and be like, here's a hero point. Let this scene play out. Mm-hmm. And that's basically how you can end up with kind of offering more narrative challenge to characters like Superman or Wonder Woman, you know, characters that should be you know, should be able to feel powerful and competent, but you as a GM sometimes need to step in and be like, just let the story happen, yeah. you know, and mm-hmm. then you'll still be able to defeat the bad guys, but we need to have a moment of something happens that we need to deal with. I mean, this is getting away from setting and encounters, you know, locations, but, you know, yeah, it can I, still I, be I will important say, to use. Yeah, when doing that, be prepared for your players to say no and take no for an answer, if mm-hmm. that's the case. The The single worst GMing experience I ever had was in Mutants and Masterminds, where I did just that, except I wasn't prepared to take no for an answer, and I made the thing happen anyway, and one of my players was very upset, and they were right to be very upset. So yeah. mm-hmm. I always try to sort of keep that at front of mind. So yep. Yeah, I had a very similar thing happen to me some time ago, because I expected to... I'm not sure if I was trying to teach my players a lesson or that they could run whenever they wanted to. And they found uh, in some purple worm area, a purple worm. I made it mm-hmm. as weak as I could. And they were with an NPC, a powerful NPC. And they lost the NPC because they took their life to uh, save the, the player party because they were refusing to run. And they wanted mm-hmm. to kill that thing. And there was no... Nothing was making them kill that thing. They, it was a random encounter. Mm-hmm. So the NPC ended up taking his life. And, well, uh, the players were extremely sad about it. Uh, but I also recognized that I was the one wrong in that. Because even though they could escape, maybe there was some sort of other way in which it could have played out. Or I could have signaled them. Well, I was actually telling them with the NPC to run. and making sure that... <laughs> I'm not entirely sure if I was that wrong about it, but who knows? I've learned from that, and that's the important I thing. once uh, was running a game where the characters were trekking through a jungle, and they had an NPC guide with them. The NPC guide was actually supposed to be a PC, a guest PC, but the player didn't show up, so it became an NPC. Mm-hmm. And for narrative reasons, I had the guest NPC, who was their guide, say, okay, the path we were going to take is flooded. We need to take a detour. And it yeah. was basically just a narrative thing to explain why they went one way <laughs> instead of another. My players spent 45 minutes arguing with me about how the path ahead being flooded didn't matter because they could get past it. And I'm just like, guys, it's just flavor. Yeah. It's literally just flavor. You're going to run into the plot no matter which way you go. But this is just flavor. Stop fighting me on this. Yeah, don't be scared to go away from the, your GM spot and tell your players what actually is happening. Because there are some times in which you are just losing time by having them argue about something that is 
extremely unnecessary. Yeah, it's like okay. players will players will do as players will do, and sometimes that's not what you expect. Mm -hmm. The best table manager I have ever played with is just brilliant about saying, you're taking too long to decide, this is what happens. And it's usually not something that you want to happen. So that is that is definitely something I try to pull in. Uh, it's much more difficult than it is for 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 me than it is for him. But yeah, mm -hmm. yeah very very good at it. Yeah, it, it's when done right, that's perfect table management. When done wrong, it can really rankle. You know, like irritate mm -hmm. the players. So it's like, but it's it's you know it's just another GMing skill. Yep, exactly. Yep. I think I think we've pretty much covered a lot. Uh, of, is, are there any last words? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> any last words on memorable locations for encounters? Yeah. Make sure to steal from movies, to steal from other uh, streamings. Make sure to steal from everywhere, even your landscape around you, uh, the different Google Earth, as I mentioned, or the places that you visit as a um, vacation. There's all sorts of things you can use uh, to make all your environments all the better and more interactive and fun to play in. Absolutely. Any last words from you, Chuck? Just if you think it's cool, then bring the energy of the thing that you think is cool to the table and your players will think it's cool too. What about mm -hmm. you, Ange? My last, uh, my last little bit of advice is if you're going to set a game in a real life location, do at least a little bit of research yeah. on that location. Because if you have a single player at your table, who has been at that location and you start describing it wrong, it's just going to kill their sense of immersion. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So this show is funded by the Gnome Stew Patreon. You too can become a Patreon backer by following the Patreon link on the Gnome Stew website to the Gnome Stew Patreon. This ad is brought to you by Dangerous Destinations. Looking for a travel package that makes the most of your hard-earned cash while giving you the most exciting trips ever? Then look no further than Dangerous Destinations. Currently offering an all-inclusive package to visit an active volcano for only $600. If you're enjoying the Gnomecast, you'll probably like many of the other Misdirected Mark shows. Here's one to check out. For example, the one that we have today is The Lounge. Doc finds the best, the brightest, the most fun game designers and sit down to have a cool chat with them. You never know what conversation is going to come up with The Lounge. You can find all of us at GnomeStew.com, at GnomeStew on Twitter, and GnomeStew on Facebook. Where else can we find you on the internet? Chuck, go. You can't. Check me out on Gnome Stew. And <laughs> you can find me on Twitter and Instagram as orikes13, O-R-I-K-E-S-13, but Twitter's kind of dead and Instagram is mostly cats. Tomas, where can we find you? Well, you can find me uh, making some articles from the Gnome Stew, or I am very regular at Twitter on Tomas Jimenez R. GM. That's T O M A S G I M N E C R G M. If I'm not wrong. Yeah. And uh -huh. we'll I also put, make we'll some in the show notes. notes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and they also make some article for Tribality and they're working on a book for it. So make sure that to check that out as well. Awesome. Awesome. So do you think we uh we had interesting enough locations to avoid becoming part of the stew today? If nothing else, we've got some great places to hide if we didn't. <laughs> Excellent. Gnomecast is hosted by Misdirected Mark Productions, the media arm of Encoded Designs. You know, so, oh, sorry, go for it, Chuck. Oh, no, I was, I was actually going to hand it off to you anyway. 
Okay, fantastic. <laughs> it's, I, I'm always ready to talk.